there's a quote I want to begin with that I've uh, said many times from this pulpit, but I think it's important for us to understand, and it's this, that brooks become crooked from taking the path of least resistance. And so do people. Now, whenever I read those words, I'm struck by their significance. They remind me again and again that life and ministry in Christ, should you choose to accept it, is a road that is riddled with obstacles and pose tremendous threats and intentional resistance to an easy living philosophy of life. In short, the Christian life is not an easy life. Anyone want to attest to that? And to underestimate, or worse yet, to flatly ignore the pressure involved is to open ourselves up to becoming severely wounded in the fight. And that's a very real danger for every single believer within earshot of this message, so much so that as a pastor and as one who is equally struggles with this threat on a daily basis, I know that this is an issue that must be addressed again and again. See, as a family of believers in Jesus Christ and as co-laborers together in the ministry of the gospel in a time of unprecedented global upheaval. Anybody agree with that? That we need to be fighting the fight and fight that pull of the path of least resistance because we can become crooked like the brooks. It's always going to be a bumpy ride for us. We must purpose, rather, to meet the challenges carefully and with determination to ride them through holding on to Jesus for dear life. Amen? I want you to take a moment right now and close your eyes. And I want you to listen intently to the words that I'm going to read to you from the book of Philippians, the letter of Paul to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. And I'm going to read them to you as paraphrased by Eugene Peterson in the message. So just listen now to Philippians 2. Be energetic in your life of salvation, reverent and sensitive before God. That energy is God's energy, an energy deep within you, God himself willing and working at what will give him the most pleasure. Do everything readily and cheerfully, no bickering, no second-guessing allowed. Go out into the world uncorrupted, a breath of fresh air in this squalid and polluted society. Provide people with a glimpse of good living and of the living God. Carry the light-giving message into the night. Amen. Note the words that I ended with into the night. Now, that's not an exaggeration, is it? It wasn't in the days of Paul, nor is it in the day in which we live. It's kind of scary, actually. It's oftentimes very painful. It's no fun when we get stuck in the ruts and we hit the potholes. But in the end, if we endure, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, as the Bible says, we mature, we begin to become more and more conformed to the image of Christ, which is exactly what God desires, amen? But if we don't respond to the bumps right away, in the right way, we can easily crash and burn, and we can become, as one man put it, broken in the wrong place. 
We need to be broken in the right place when God breaks us. But we can become broken in the wrong place if we're not careful. Alan Nelson writes, look around you. The older you get, the more you see people who have lost the twinkle in their eyes. They have endured tough circumstances, but not successfully. And he says this, he says, there is a wide difference between being weather-beaten and being seasoned and matured. It's true, isn't it? Well, that author recognized that most of us tend to internalize the painful experience of tough times instead of letting them actually become part of the healing process. And it's easier to say than it is to accomplish, isn't it? Nevertheless, on the other side of the trials, we all know that statement to be a truthful one. And so as I begin this morning, I just want to say to you that today's message is not meant to be a scolding in any way, shape, or form. On the contrary, it's meant to be an encouragement for all of us to enter into the excitement and the thrill of really being the church and bringing the joy of the gospel to the people around us in a unique and challenging time in our history. It's an exhortation that we as a community of Christ, the community of believers, make it our aim to please God and to live our lives for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Especially now. Friends, the church is being threatened by the adversary of Christ and the enemy of our souls, your souls, if you're in Christ. I believe that we're experiencing a time of increased vulnerability in this country such as we have never seen before. We are under attack, the attack of a strong and determined foe. He has one agenda in mind, and that is to seek out and destroy the influence of God's people on the world. And he's going to do it any way that he can muster. He'll attack from without. He'll attack from within. Make no mistake about it, he's very adept at doing both. And very clever. This is, in effect, a call to arms. A mustering of the army for the battle that awaits us. Now, I've felt something similar over the years that we have entered into seasons of an intense ministry at various times over the course of the time that I've been here. This sense of tension mounting in my mind in the inner spirit. And I realized I must be prepared to begin to prepare myself for the onslaught of the enemy's attack, and you do too. And it shouldn't surprise us at all. The gospel of Jesus Christ is presented in so many different ways throughout different aspects of the church, and people are introduced to Jesus from so many angles that we should count on a spiritual assault from the enemy. Is that right? Satan is not going to sit idly by while his domain is being infiltrated, and we shouldn't either. We need to be prepared. So I'm compelled, therefore, to not only prepare myself, but hopefully all of you, for the ministry Christ is calling us to as a church as we face a future that, that may include global chaos and unrest. This is already happening. So today I want to take the time to remind us of what I believe Christ desires of us in the midst of all of this. Now, these are not new thoughts. 
The majority of you know them already, but they must be newly applied. Let's put it that way. The Word of God has been written for us to guide us for such a time as this. Amen? So as I wrestle with these issues, I'm trying to get a reading on our church's spiritual temperature. I'm asking questions not only about my own life, but also about the life of the whole body. Is there a trace of cynicism in our midst about the things of God? You can ask yourself that question in your own life. Cynicism. Is there a loss of vision? A cooling off of our zeal and commitment? Do I sense frustration or the potential for resentment, clouded communication, and in some areas even a tolerance of sin and a refusal to be broken before God in the right place? Do I sense battle fatigue amongst our people and in myself? A loss of energy and vitality which results in unattended hurts and uncelebrated triumphs, unnoticed needs and unreceived blessings. These, all these things, all these questions, they can severely cripple a body, can't they? They can even be fatal to a body. And if we're not careful, we can develop this very negative view of the church and our mission as the church. You know, the enemy is very smart, but the spirit is smarter. And we must rely on his wisdom if we're going to overcome the enemy's attempts to pull us down. Someone once said, people who make life fit into a nutshell belong in one. And I'm not so naive to think that three points in a story is going to completely arm us against our foe right now, but it certainly doesn't hurt to remind ourselves of the very basic truths of what the church of Jesus Christ is all about, right? So today, speaking to you as a family of God, I, I say, as Peter said in his second letter, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you, and I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. That's 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. So let me begin with this reminder, that as the church of Jesus Christ, we must be focused on a common purpose. Focused on a common purpose. In Philippians chapter 1, if you want to turn there, you can. We're going to look at a few verses in Philippians. But in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, again from the message, it says, Stand united, singular in vision, contending for the people's trust in the message, the good news, not flinching or dodging in the slightest before the opposition. Stand united, singular in vision, contending for the faith, basically. What should drive us is our mutual commitment to a common purpose which we are called to as the church. That purpose is what? Well, very simply for us at Fayette Baptist Church, it is to glorify God by introducing people to Jesus Christ and helping them to become his committed followers. That's our vision. That's our purpose. That's our mission. Sometimes we forget that that's what we're in the business of doing, don't we? Anglican priest Leonard Griffith warns, quote, if the church ever drops the word mission from its vocabulary, 
it will have written its own obituary, unquote. Now, there's this tendency for us to replace that basic priority with other more subtle emphases, okay? Let me give you a few examples. Building maintenance, or music and the arts, or fellowship, or education, or social service, or political action. That's heavy on everybody's mind right now. While all of these things are important and are valid church ministries and involvements vital to the accomplishment of our goals, they are not the ends in and of themselves, are they? They are the means to an end. And when we lose sight of the big picture, that's where we are lured into the snare of the enemy. You've heard me on previous occasions talk about the volunteer organization called the United States Life-Saving Service or, of the, or the Massachusetts Humane Society. You've heard me talk about that before? If not, what they were is they were in the life-saving business. They would risk everything, even in their lives, to go out into thrashing seas in order to save drowning and shipwrecked people that they never met. Their motto was this. You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. Remember I've talked about that before? Now, I emphasize the word were in the life-saving business because what ended up happening to them was that they lost their purpose. They began to adopt the idea, well, let's let the professionals do it. They're better trained at it. They get paid for it. And you know what happened? They became ingrown. They stopped sending teams out to rescue drowning people. And the interesting thing is, is that the, that society still exists today. The members meet every once in a while and all they do is have dinners. And they enjoy one another's company, fellowship. They gather together. They're just not in the life-saving business anymore. Now that threat is more real than it appears, isn't it? We must remember that we have been called to join Jesus in his life-saving business, right? We don't always see it because we're blinded by our self-preoccupation. But people around us are having mini shipwrecks every single day. In our own unique way, we can reflect the light of the one who on the cross lived out the aspiration of the initial mission of the Humane Society, which was, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. That's big stuff. That's big stuff to concentrate on and to think about as a church, isn't it? Now, to accomplish what God has prioritized and called us to do to maintain our composure and stability against an enemy that seeks to cut us off at the knees and cloud our vision, we must be first unflinchingly focused on that common purpose, okay? So focused on a common purpose. Secondly, as the church of Jesus Christ, we must be fueled by continual prayer. Oh, that's a big one, isn't it? I'm of the opinion that Jesus didn't waste his words, right? He never uttered a disposable word. 
Think about that. That's, that's a good thing to meditate on for the rest of the week. Jesus never uttered a disposable word. If that is true, then when Luke writes that he was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart in Luke 18, 1, our ears ought to perk up to what he's saying, right? On the night he was arrested, as he himself poured out his heart to his father in the agonizing prayer of Gethsemane, in preparation for this intense violence that he would encounter as he took upon himself the weight of our sin. This is what he told his followers, if you remember. Quote, keep watching and what? Praying. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation because the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Oh my goodness. Spirit's willing, right? Oh, my flesh is weak. How's yours? That's Matthew 26, 41. Shouldn't that say something to us about the importance and the necessity of our devotion to this spiritual discipline of prayer? What Jesus said? My own conscience burns as I seriously consider this issue. I need to pray more. Do you? We as a church need to pray more. You realize that we, we don't even have any corporate prayer meetings other than when we get together like this? I think at this period of time in history, we should be meeting together probably in this place to pray a lot more than we need to do anything else at this time. And I, I have to own that as a pastor because we're not making those opportunities available. I think maybe we need to refocus on that, huh? Is it any wonder that we can be subject to the attacks and the weaknesses of, uh, attacks and weaknesses openly exposed to the enemy when we attempt to wage the war for Christ without our armor on? We charge out on the front lines of the battle unprepared, unprotected, and we wonder why there are so many walking wounded in our midst, why Christians are bickering, why everybody's at each other's throats. Maybe it's got something to do with the fact that we are not on our knees before the Father. Churches have sustained some devastating hits from the enemy since COVID has erupted. 2020's been a tough year, hasn't it? And we're heading toward the end of it now. How do you want 2021 to look? There have been no shortage of spiritual setbacks and struggles in our own lives that may prohibit or at least inhibit the extent of our involvement in the regular church activities that we've all grown up with. But to be sure, there are incredible victories going on. Let's not, let's not discount those. I just spent time with what? How many men did we have together yesterday? For almost 40 men. We walked eight and a half miles together. We, we mimicked what Jesus and his disciples did. And we had lessons, spiritual lessons along the way, mutually encouraging one another. But if that's where that thing ends, right there, and it doesn't motivate us to go out and preach the gospel better and lock arm in arm with each other so that we can have each other's backs in this fight, then all of that would have been nothing but a party like, or a dinner like the Humane Society has now, Right? And see, people are still responding to the call of God on their lives. 
But will we have the spiritual stamina to stay the course? The sober answer to that question is that we won't unless we get down on our knees and begin to seek the Lord in prayer. And my friends, if people aren't keeping alert and committing themselves to prayer, I mean seriously doing business with God, then we're fighting the battle unprotected. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5 says this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Amen? Drawing upon the prophet Isaiah, Jesus declares unequivocally, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Can we really call our churches or our small groups houses of prayer? As Richard Foster points out, quote, all too often they are places for everything and anything but prayer. True, we need to have our business meetings and our committee meetings and our Bible studies and our self-help groups and our worship services. And then he finishes with this. But if the fire is not hot at the center these are only ashes in our hands. Those are some penetrating sentiments, aren't they? We must pray, says Jesus, our leader. And I am hereby calling all small group leaders to unity on this and make intercessory prayer regarded at least a part of your regular meetings if it's not already. Make it a part of your small group meetings. I don't care if you're on Zoom or if you're meeting in person. You can do it. We can do it. Pray for, pray for your pastors. Pray for leaders. Pray for each other. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for their health and their spiritual protections. Pray for wisdom. Pray for the opportunity to share Christ, for grace, for patience, for compassion, for forgiveness. Pray especially for God to open the door for one single opportunity for us as a church and individually to, uh, to offer the hope of Christ to someone caught up in the fear of this pandemic that causes them to lash out in anger. Because there's plenty of those people. Pray for the Spirit to infect their hearts, not the virus, but the spiritual virus, that they may be ravished by the love and grace of Christ. There is no limit to what we can pray for. Can you see why we need to be devoted to it, why the Scripture says be devoted to prayer? It's our fuel for spiritual revival and survival. It keeps us prepared, it keeps us protected, and it keeps us preserved that we might persevere. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. God is strong and he wants you strong. So take everything the master has set out for you, well-made weapons of the best materials, and put them to use so you will be able to stand up to everything the devil throws your way. This is no afternoon athletic contents, my friends, that we'll walk away from and forget about in a couple of hours. This is for keeps. 
a life or death fight to finish against the devil and all his angels. Be prepared. You're up against far more than you can handle on your own. Take all the help you can get, every weapon God has issued, so that when it's all over but the shouting, you'll still be on your feet. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation are more than words. Learn how to apply them. You'll need them throughout your life. God's word is an indispensable weapon. In the same way, prayer is essential in this ongoing warfare. Pray hard and long. Pray for your brothers and sisters. Keep your eyes open. Keep each other's spirits up so that no one falls behind or drops out. And don't forget to pray for me, Paul says. I'll say it too. Pray that I'll know what to say and have the courage to say it at the right time, telling the mystery to one and all. Now that's a, probably reads way different than what versions you're reading out of your Bible. But again, that's from the message. And the, I'm using the message this morning for a very particular purpose because I want you to hear it in layman's terms. I want you to hear it with color. I want you to hear it in a way that you will apply it to your lives. Conversationally. Someone once said that Satan laughs at our toiling, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. You've heard that quote before, right? But if we're going to be much for God, we need to be much with God, starting now. Leonard Ravenhill said that, by the way. Champion for revival. Will you pray? That's the question. Now, we need to take the high road with Jesus on this. He knew the importance of being focused on a common goal, and purpose, the necessity of being fueled by the practice of continual prayer, but also, thirdly, as a church, we must be filled with spiritual power, the spiritual power that is at our disposal. Why? Because we have the power of the Spirit, don't we, if we're in Christ? Now, I'm not going to elaborate too much on this. If you want to know what that looks like in your life, read Galatians 5, verses 16 to 26 this week and see if your life measures up to what that says. But in the Old Testament, God gave Zechariah a vision of the completion of his temple. No matter what obstacle came against it, no matter what enemy tried to thwart it, God encouraged the builders there that they would be successful in building that temple, but it would not ultimately be accomplished by the human strength or the ingenuity of their human leadership. It would be by the power of the Holy Spirit that that temple would stand, amen? So we get this verse that everybody knows, Zechariah 4, 6. It's not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That promise given to the Old Testament nation of Israel sounds exactly like something that we in the New Testament church have been given as well. We have the promise of a Savior, right? You know what I'm referring to, right? Jesus gave Peter that same promise in Matthew 16, 18, when he says, upon this rock, I'll build my church, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a parallel promise in the New Testament to what God gave through Zechariah in the Old Testament. When we are content to operate in our own strength, the building crumbles. But in the Spirit of God, God's Holy Spirit power, Jesus promises that his church will be so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell would be able to keep it out. COVID cannot keep it out. 
The upcoming elections cannot keep it out. If this church is to maintain its staying power, we must be driven by a common purpose, fueled by continual prayer, and filled with the Spirit's power. But all of that will become null and void. Null and void if we are not stimulated by a concern for people. We talk about the fact that lost people matter to God, right? And therefore, they should matter to us. In fact, we emphasize that so much that at times I think we forget that saved people matter to God. And they should matter to us. Loving one another is a very real command in the New Testament, isn't it? Love needs to be openly and continually communicated to the people in the church as well as to those outside the church. And the question we need to ask ourselves then is what we, as we deal with this chaos and crisis in the world around us, is what should people see in us as the church? And the answer is a church unified in Christ. I say it again? A church unified in Christ. Will you repeat it with me? A church unified in Christ. Oneness, unity, not uniformity, but true unity. Oneness of faith and heart and soul and mind that is based on a common bond of Christ's love that is deep within each one of us as his disciples. That is what people ought to see when they look at the church, the people of Christ at Fayette Baptist Church or any church. In the second chapter of Philippians, Paul addresses this very matter, writing from a Roman prison. He addresses a problem that had affected their unity, probably not a huge problem, a personality clash perhaps in chapter four, first four verses. But if left unchecked, it could become a full-blown faction and divide the church. Yet Philippians, on, 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 with all this background, Paul writing from prison is a book of joy, Right? The joyful promotion of the gospel. That is the theme of the, of the entire letter to the Philippians. The joyful promotion of the gospel. And it permeates that entire letter. So let me suggest to you that in the opening verses of chapter 2, Paul's premise is that the very best way to communicate the joy of Christ's salvation is through the unity of his people. Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4. Look at it with me. Therefore... If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Everyone wants unity. Everyone talks about unity. But few are the people who will do what it takes to preserve it. And there are even fewer who are willing to play by its rules. The rules for unity in the church can be boiled down to very, two very simple focal points. You probably heard me talk about them. It's having the right motivation in your heart 
and having the right mindset in your brain. Motivation and mindset, two M words that you can readily grab onto. The motivation for unity is based simply on what we already have in Christ, our, our assurance in Christ. This is what we have according to Philippians chapter two. We have a comfort that encourages us. We have a love that consoles us. And we have the spirit that connects us. Look at it right there in verse one. Therefore, and you could translate this, not if there is any encouragement or if there is, you could translate it according to the language as since. Since there is encouragement in Christ, since any consolation of love, since any fellowship of the spirit, since there is affection and compassion. See, we're inextricably and irreversibly connected to one another, joined at the spiritual hip, so to speak, by the Holy Spirit. And so we need to deal with that, right? We who are believers in Christ are part of one body. Say it, one body. Not only that, but we're part of each other. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're members one of another. Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 say it too. Friends, we're tied to one another by a supernatural power that is beyond our ability to control, the Holy Spirit. Can you control the wind? No. Can you control the Spirit? No. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus, right? You see the Spirit, you feel the effects, you don't know whether it's coming or going. And what God has joined together, let no man even begin to try to separate, right? I'm not talking about marriage, I'm talking about the church. Believe me, brothers and sisters, the target of the enemy is to get us separated from each other. Separated. As Jamie Buckingham wrote, the strategy of the devil is to keep people separated from one another in a hell of isolation and independence, relating their lives to each other only superficially. But while we're called on by God to sharpen individualism, that is never to be done independently from the members of the family of God. And so those are good words by Jamie Buckingham. What does, they, what does that all mean, though, practically speaking? It means that we affect each other. It means my, my following Christ affects the way you follow Christ. And the way you follow Christ affects the way I follow Christ. And if I mess that up, you get hurt. And if you mess it up, I get hurt. And your participation in this church directly affects every other member in it. That's why Paul so adamantly charges in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 24, God has so composed the body so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. So there's... There's individuality and there's also community, right? And that means that every person redeemed by the blood of Christ needs the other person. We need each other. We fit together like pieces in a puzzle, which when properly working together, you know what that puzzle presents to the world? The portrait of Jesus. If we have Christ living in us, then there's this comfort that exhorts us, love that consoles us, spirit that connects us, and we ought to have a compassion that distinguishes us. That's what it says here. The more we become like Christ, the more tender that we will be. Well, I should say, should be. 
Let me just make this statement. This is a statement that I think we should all write down, right here on our hearts. If anything should distinguish Christians from the rest of the world, it should be tenderheartedness. Tenderheartedness. I think for many of us, we have a long way to go in learning that. I know I do. Now, friends, these are the facts. These are the biblical facts. I'm reading them to you right out of the scriptures. Our unity is motivated by what we have in Christ. It's not something we drum up on our own. It's what we've already received when we came to Christ, a comfort that exhorts us, a love that consoles us, a spirit that connects us, and compassion that distinguishes us. And when all these things are present and practiced under the control of the Holy Spirit, the gospel spreads and God is glorified. And that is what people should see in us as the church. Now, if the motivation for unity is assurance in Christ, and the mindset of unity is oneness in Christ. And that's right there in verses 2 to 4. Paul says, if all these things are true, and since they are true, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. You see, our oneness in Christ, this mindset of unity, depends upon our commitment to five things here that he lists in verses 2 to 4. I'm not going to unpack every single one of them really in detail, so don't worry. But these are, this is the list. It's right there in your Bibles, but I'll list it for you so you can write them down. We must be of one mind, being of the same mind. We must be of one heart, maintaining the same love. We must be of one soul, united in spirit. We must be driven by one purpose, intent on one purpose. And then we must be committed to one plan. One mind, okay? There is a higher, more compelling vision than the fulfilling of our own agendas. It's often repeated in the New, it's so often repeated in the New Testament, it's impossible to ignore. Be of the same mind with each other. Romans chapter 12, 16. Romans chapter 15, verse 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. They all use that same phrase, be of the same mind. Then there's one heart. So maintaining the same love, that means whether or not we agree on every single point of every item, that we will maintain this mutual love and respect for each other, regardless of whether we agree or not. You know, Jesus said, let me give you this one command. Agree with one another. In the same way I agree with you, you agree with me and agree with one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you agree with one another. Is that what it says? What did Jesus say? Love one another. Can we love each other and be in disagreement? Absolutely. Can we love each other and be sinning against each other? Probably not. At least not actively. Somewhere along the line, we're squelching the love if we're sinning against each other. No, let me give you a new command. Love one another in the same way I love you, you love one another. This is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples when they see the love you have for each other. Peter and Jesus didn't always agree, did they? But Jesus loved Peter, and Peter loved Jesus. And that's why, even after he denied Jesus, tried to stop him from going to the cross, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, 
Jesus restored Peter, and Peter went to his death for Jesus. Jesus wasn't kidding around when he was speaking these words. He was dead serious. The command to love is one of the most repeated commands in the New Testament some 55 plus times. If we don't love people, if we don't love each other, nothing else we do matters. One iota. 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 and 2 explicitly says that we can perform all kinds of things in the church that seem like ministry, they look like ministry, they smell like ministry, but if we don't have love, then we're nothing. The church's impact on the world during this pandemic will stand or fall in direct proportion to the level with which we are saturated with love for each other. God's love for us and our love for Jesus and our love for each other. That's it. So we need to be of one soul. That means thinking the same, the one thing. It means to be of one accord. It's... It, the word really means that we are in such unity that we will act as if one soul activate us, activated all of us. And that's really what it is, isn't it? It's Jesus' soul that should activate all of us. And then we have one purpose. One purpose. One mind, one heart, one soul, one purpose. What's the secret? Alexander McLaren, an old commentator, said this, quote, it is having our hearts directed to Christ that makes us one. He is the bond and the center of unity, unquote. You cannot be out of sync with each other if each of us is in sync with Christ, right? I think it was Oswald Chambers or somebody, I think it was Oswald Chambers that said a hundred pianos all tuned to the same fork are each in tune with each other. But if I try to tune my piano to your piano and then somebody else tries to tune their piano to mine and it always goes down the line, by the time you get to the hundredth piano, it's so far out of tune, it's not even funny. We all have to be in tune with A440, right? Is that, is that right? <laughs> and so... The final thing here, before we close, and this is the hardest one. It's the one we always forget. We need to be committed to one plan. Okay, so you might be thinking that I've been talking about this right along. But verses 3 and 4 really deal with this. What's the one plan? It's right there. The arch enemy of the gospel is self-centeredness. To be consumed with ourselves is to ignore the needs of others and it's to ignore the, need, the call of God. And that means if it comes down to a choice between me and you, it's got to be you. That's humility of mind. That's what it says here. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Why do I say that's the one plan that we need to be committed to? You know why? Because it was Jesus' plan. Look at the next verse in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus 
who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. Someone has said that there is no smaller package than a man all wrapped up in himself. And that person was right on the money when they coined that sentence. You know, we need to forget about ourselves because it's not really about us at all. It's about Christ. It's about presenting him to the world. Paul said it like this. I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come up and get ready as we head into communion. We're going to celebrate communion together. But this is the way that Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This will be our parting sentiment here from the lips and the pen of the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19 and 23, Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. And here's the kicker. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So my question for you and for me is, are we prepared to do that in these trying times? Because my beloved brethren, the sea is raging out there and people are drowning out there. And we're the life-saving station that Christ has assembled here at Fayette. And we're compelled to go out. But we don't have to come back. We need to go out. Because that's where the fight lies, right? That's what Jesus called us to. And he made the way. 